Connecting Coaches Cognition. Coaching with Courtney and Christensen. As a busy coach, you spend all day refueling, revamping, and reflecting with educators. Now is the time to stop and recharge your batteries with some much-needed coaching for the coach. Welcome back to another episode of C3. I'm Courtney Groskin, and I'm here with Violet Christensen. Violet, what's new in your world? Oh my goodness. I can't believe that this is our fifth season of celebrating the season in whatever way our listeners love to and just savoring the magic of winter and fun and a break from education in the most possible bright way it can be. And I just, I think that it's just fun to be able to savor the moments with my own children and with um, school children and be able to see the magic and light that they all bring in this time. And it's just fun to see their excitement. Like we get ramped up for school. We get ramped up for spring. Like we get ramped up for all these things, but just also being ramped up for a moment of pause and having a break and being able to savor and enjoy that is really powerful. Um, it's been kind of a weird season in Colorado just because we haven't had as much snow as we normally do. So I feel like we're in a faux winter, it's going to hit us hard. I know it's coming, except you bought a snowblower. So it's not actually going to come. Oh no, I'm waiting. I haven't tried it out yet. So we'll like, it's, it's standing in the waiting whim and it's going to be ready, but no, just being able to enjoy all of the things. We're actually in a weird season right now that my girls are taking swimming in the middle of winter. And so we're just trying to stay warm and learn new skills and be able to um, be ready for next summer. Like, you know, you got, you got to prepare new skills all the time, right? Always planning ahead. <laughs> What's going on in your world, my friend? I'm living in the holiday prep land of uh, pulling out my holiday lights. And I have a set, two sets that are tangled together that I've invested a lot of time in. And I'm like, pass Courtney, get it together. Like if you just take in five minutes and put these away properly, like all the other strands are put away. I don't know what happened. <laughs> if I was frustrated and like, okay, this is a problem for future Courtney, but now I'm, you know, kind of upset at past me. I get it. I get it. The Halloween decor was not super organized at my household either. So we haven't even gotten to Christmas. So you're winning. You're winning. <laughs> It's just like, you know, in the moment of stressful times, taking like five minutes of preparation pays off, you know, when you put that bin away neatly. Uh, can't you put pickles on that? Like, does she have the dexterity to like make that happen? No? I mean, she could eat through the lights <laughs> and get them undone probably, but uh, that would end up in me buying new lights anyway. Future future children jobs. We'll just hire my children out to your house for those weekends. Yeah, totally. Little fingers, right? Absolutely. We're so fortunate to have Peter Lilliadal joining us today. Peter is a professor of mathematics education in the Faculty of Education and an associate member in the Department of Mathematics at Simon Fraser University in Canada. He's a former high school mathematics teacher who has kept his research interest and activities close to the classroom. He is a member of the executive board of the British Columbia Mathematics Teacher Association and current president of the International Group for the Psychology of Mathematics Education. He consults regularly with teachers, schools, school districts, and ministries of education on issues of teaching and learning, thinking classrooms, assessment, and numeracy. Peter, we are so excited to have you today and to be able to share your brilliance with our listeners. Can you give us a little bit of background about you and also how you've gotten to where you are now and also tell us a little bit about um, defining a vertical non-permanent surface so that everyone is on board for today's conversation? Okay. Wow. All right. So those are big, broad questions. <laughs> so who am I? I? I'm a professor of math education at Simon Fraser University, but that's, of course, not where my career ambitions started. I started out as a classroom teacher. I taught high school in the Vancouver School District, which is a grade 8 through 12 district. I taught math, physics, and English composition. So that's not to say that those were my teachables when I was training to be a teacher. It's just that in Canada, and in British Columbia at least, where I live, um, a teacher is a teacher is a teacher. So I taught everything, whether I was equipped to it to do it or not. Um, and then I eventually went off and did my graduate work, not with the intention of becoming a professor, with the intention of just 
continuing my learning and furthering my profession um, and, and, and always going with the intention of going back into the classroom. And then destiny sort of intervened and I ended up being a, a professor at Simon Fraser University. Uh, love that. I, I love being a classroom teacher. I absolutely love, I, I thought I'd be a classroom teacher my whole career. I love teaching a lot. And I, there's something about just the chaos of the classroom that just feeds my ADHD mind. Um, in fact, in the last two days, I've taught in four different classrooms um, where I am now. And it's just something that that I think I'll always have a passion for. Um, and I thought that was going to be my only passion until I started working with teachers. And then I realized that, wow, there's there's another passion, a whole different level of of. I, I, you know, teaching teachers is an un, is 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 an overstatement and an understatement, right? I work with teachers. I work with pre-service teachers. I work with in-service teachers, um, and um, part of that is research-based. Part of that is just driven by my own passion to help teachers achieve their professional growth goals. Um, of late. Some work I've been doing into something called Building Thinking Classrooms has sort of caught fire around North America and the world. Um, it's a particular research project that was around, that was built around the recognition that students spend a lot of time in classrooms not thinking and that this is problematic. Thinking is a necessary precursor to learning. And if we want students to learn, we've got to get them to think. And that coupled with the realization that huh, classrooms weren't really designed for this thinking stuff, right? Classrooms were designed in that post-industrial uh, age uh, to be a place that creates conformity and compliance and that many of the routines that exist in classrooms today and structures are still really driven towards that and that it's really hard to achieve thinking inside of a space that is designed to create conformity and compliance. So... I started doing research on how do I, how can I, how can I change this environment? How can I change the environment so that students can change their behavior? And that was 15 years of research before the book came out and the research has continued. Um, and one of your, part of your question about what is a vertical non-permanent surface is, is actually one of the outcomes of that research. It showed that one of the least conducive spaces to having students actually do thinking is sitting in their desk writing in their notebook. Um, and it also showed that the most conducive space to have them do their thinking is to stand in groups, random groups of three, at a vertical whiteboard. Except it doesn't have to be a whiteboard. It just has to be vertical and erasable. So a window will work, side of a file cabinet will work, a vinyl picnic table cover stapled to a bulletin board will work. As long as it's vertical, and non-permanent, meaning that if the kids write on it, they can still erase it. So there's there's where that term came from: a vertical, non-permanent surface. It's uh, it's a it's a cornerstone to the building thinking classroom framework for trying to transform our our learning spaces into spaces where students can think. And it's about getting students up and on their feet and working at vertical whiteboards. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that turned out to be optimal, but I'll let that come out in the conversation after. Does that does that satisfy your your question there? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right. I could have I could have talked for another 3 or 4 hours on that topic, but uh, we'll leave it at that. We would have taken it, but we just <laughs> wanted to have a grounding for everyone as they start to listen in. <laughs> Yeah, we appreciate your passion um, for teaching and then how that passion is kind of transformed into working with educators. I think Violet and I have very similar stories about how we absolutely love the classroom and then realize we could have such a big impact in working with the adults um, in schools as well as working alongside students. So what are the characteristics of tasks that work best with whiteboard surfaces? Um, to be honest, any task. It, it's not about the task in relation to the surface. It's about the task in relation to the student, right? Um, if we want our students to think, we have to give them something to think about, and that is the task. But in order for that task to be a thinking task, it has to, it has to be a particular relationship to the student. So, for example, asking grade ones to add two-digit numbers is actually an amazing thinking task. Not so much for a grade nine student, 
right? So there's a, the task is inert. The task is just a task. It's, it's when that task intersects with a learner in the hands of a teacher that it becomes a thinking task, right? So any task that gets students to think is a thinking task. And then we get them doing that thinking up on the whiteboards because that is a better, it's a better space for thinking to manifest. Um, so what are the characteristics of a good task that intersects with a student? Well, it has to have a low floor. So it has to have, every student has to be able to access it because that's actually how we create, start to create equity in the classroom is by creating access. Um, Every student should have access to the task. We shouldn't, we shouldn't pick a task that immediately excludes one third of our students, right? That would be, that would be unconscious, unconscionable, right? So we pick a task that every student can start, but it also has to have a high ceiling, which means that either through extensions or evolving complexity, the task has to get harder so that every student, although every student can start, every student will also feel challenged so that the task isn't trivial. Right. So those are two characteristics. The third characteristic is that it has to have some measure of novelty to it. Something there has to be something about it that the students have never seen before, because thinking is what we do when we don't know what to do. If we know what to do, we just do it. So the task has to be intersecting with that student at a time where this is something that hasn't yet turned into a routine. Right. So asking first graders to add two digit numbers is a perfect thinking task. Ninth graders, not so much because we've routinized the adding of two-digit numbers by then. It's not a thinking task anymore. Now it's just an exercise. So really, it's about that. Um, and then we get them up at the whiteboards. And why is that so important? Because when they're standing, everyone is oriented to the work the same way. That creates equal access. When they're standing and working at a whiteboard, they can see other students' progress, which gives them ideas, knowledge, mobility. Smartest person in the room is the room. When they're standing working at whiteboards, I'm a better teacher because I can access their understanding and their learning today. I don't have to wait for the quiz on Friday to see if they understand it. I can see it right now and I can intervene right now. But the most important part about the standing at the whiteboard that was so important had nothing to do with standing and everything to do with sitting. It turns out that it's not standing that is so good. It's that sitting is so bad. And not like sitting is the new smoking. It's, it turned out and it took over two years to get at this result that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And when, and the further they sit from the teacher, the more anonymous they feel. And when students feel anonymous, they disengage. And what standing up did was it took away their anonymity and it, and therefore it took away their, their drive to disengage. And I think we all know this as teachers. We know the kids who choose to sit in the back of the classroom. Why do they choose to sit in the back? So that they can disengage, right? And we also know that the kids who happen to land in the back of the classroom, whether they choose to or not, are more likely to disengage than the kids who are at the front of the classroom, right? Where students sit, the fact that they're sitting um, creates this incredible inertia to disengage. And what standing up did and then giving them a task that they they aren't familiar with creates this perfect sort of storm for thinking to happen. Yeah, I mean, now more than ever, we need students engaged in the classroom. I think post-COVID, we're having um, a pandemic of disengagement across the board. That's something I hear, especially at the secondary level. So it's really powerful that just by getting students to stand up, we're seeing an increase in engagement. Yeah, and this was this was what was so interesting about this research. It's these little things that make a difference, like, and make a huge difference, like, like really subtle things. Like, if I write the question on the whiteboard, we actually get more engagement from students than if I print it on a piece of paper and give it to them. Like, who would have thought? Who would have thought that these things make a difference? But they do. They make a difference. And it's unbelievable those small nuances in how that increases or decreases engagement as you're speaking to. It's just, it's super powerful and we have to be hyper aware, as Courtney's saying, post-COVID of those small, tiny, little things to be able to bring everyone to the forefront of their learning, right? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. I 
Peter, tell us more in a, in a thinking classroom, where does the direct instruction fit within the lesson? Tell us, does it best prelude or follow the work with the vertical non-permanent surface or whiteboard? However, we would like to say that today. <laughs> um, so the answer to your question is yes and no. It's um, so direct instruction is this interesting thing that we we talk about in education in general. And I think we need to have some clarity around what we mean when we say direct instruction. So what is direct instruction? And is it the same or different than a lecture? Right? Is it is it like how do we define these things? So if we if we want to get precise about this, um, you know, I suggest people lean into some of the readings from John Hattie and so on. He, he differentiates between direct instruction and, and lecture in a way that is really, really helpful. What I find, however, is when I'm talking to educators and leaders, especially policymakers um, and, and lay people who think they know something about education, they, they collapse these two together. And they are vastly different and they have vastly different effects on students. Um, but let's get back to this idea of direct instruction. Where is, where's my opportunity in a thinking classroom as a teacher to feed students something new, some new knowledge, something that they didn't know coming in the room? So the fundamental principle in a thinking classroom is that the students are going to work at the whiteboards in their random groups of three and try to figure things out which means what I'm really feeding them more than anything else is tasks, not random assortments of tasks, carefully selected tasks that are getting marginally more challenging with every, with every question. Um, so it's, we think about it as a task sequence that gets progressively more challenging. And in doing so, it, we lift the students up. Um, but sometimes we need to prime the pump. There's something that, that they can't even start with question one because there's there, there's things they don't know, right? So, for example, in the math context, Pythagorean theorem, right? Like it, it comes out of left field, bam, there it is. There's nothing before it that, pre that prepares students for it. There it is on a random Wednesday in November, and we have to – we're going to do this today. So I need to give them some knowledge. I need to give them some information. And this comes at the beginning of the lesson. So this precludes the thinking at the whiteboards. Um, but it's different than a lecture, and it's different than the direct instruction that we've seen in classrooms. What the research showed is that you have five minutes. You have five minutes. And, and it's not just five minutes with a kid sitting in their desk and you, you saying what you normally say in 20 minutes four times faster. It's they're going to be on their feet. They're not sitting there writing notes. They're on their feet. They're with me at a whiteboard or around a table or wherever. They're, they're with me on our feet. And we're talking to each other. I have five minutes. So whatever it is I need to say to them, I need to say it in five minutes. Our research shows that beyond five minutes, the students become more and more passive. And then the more passive they become, the harder it is to move them, to transition them into being active. Right? The transition from being a passive receiver of knowledge to being an active creator of knowledge is an uphill transition. The more passive they become, the steeper that hill becomes, the less likely it's going to be for us to be able to, to, to transition. So we got five minutes. Now, what are we used to putting in that direct instruction at the front end of a lesson? We're used to as teachers and as a system, because this is how we were taught, we're used to talking until the students have been prepared to do the last question on the homework, right? We've talked through every nuance. We've talked through every possibility. We've, we've, we've looked at cases, types A1, A, B, C, and we're, and we're now getting the kids to actually practice some of this stuff, right? We've given a good lecture. But in a thinking classroom, that's not what it, what, how it works. In a thinking classroom, you say the minimum that you have to in order to help the students do question number one, the first question in your sequence. And that's priming the pump. Now they, they have something and they can start. Um, and, and then we can push them. We can give them another question and they can learn something in that. And then we give them another question and another question and another question. 
right? And we just move the kids forward. If we need to say more at some point in the middle, we can, but we can never unsay what we say at the beginning, right? So what we're trying to do is preserve that thinking space by not sucking the thinking out of it by A, disengaging the kids and B, telling them how to do it. Because if the minute we tell them how to do it, this is not a thinking activity. It's now just an exercise, right? So we have that, that five minutes at the beginning if we need to use it. Today, I did a lesson on the tangent function. I used four minutes of the five minutes. They'd never seen it before. And, and that's all I needed. And I just needed enough to give, get them going on their first task. All right. Now they're working the room. They're working at the boards. They're thinking, thinking, thinking. And they're, they're, they're doing great work. They're really collaborating. They're problem solving. They're making meaning. They're, they're, they're understanding it. But if the bell rings and they walk out of the room, their ideas that they have developed at the whiteboards are likely to float away. Why? Because they are unorganized, they're unstructured, and they're informal. Their ideas are kind of floating at a periphery to them. So we need to help, we need to close off the lesson, close off this whiteboard activity in such a way that we help them organize, structure, and formalize their thoughts. We need to bring order to the chaos so that we can turn some of this sense-making, meaning-making, this thinking that they're doing into reified, retained learning. So, so we have time at the end of the lesson as well. Except, again, this is not a lecture. This is not my time to, you know, okay, fire up the PowerPoint, and now I'm going to talk to you for 20 minutes. This is how do I pull from their experiences, from what they've done? How do I move them through a series of activities to help organize their thoughts so that when they walk out of the room, they can, they, they, their ideas are more orderly. So we do a consolidation or we can do meaningful notes or we can do what we call check your understanding questions, a sort of self-assessment. All of these help bring order to the chaos. And again, it's not a time for lectures, not a time for direct instruction. It's a time for helping them to organize, structure, and formalize their thoughts. And what a valuable skill that is. You know, after a heavy lift of learning, we all need time to process and consolidate that learning together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and they need help. They need help doing it. Right. They've been they've been at the whiteboards. They're in the muck. I say they're spitballing. They're clawing their way forward. They're 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 brainstorming. They're having ideas. The ideas are working. They're they're pulling themselves forward, but they haven't yet brought order to these thoughts. Right. And, and we need to help with that. That's we're helping them make meaning. We're not giving them our meaning made. I know in the classroom, we often encourage compliance, um, and many teachers have this experience of mimicking themselves as students, so it can be a hard practice to break. Um, what are some initial steps to breaking the habit of mimicking for students, and what about for teachers when planning lessons? What kind of indicators can they look for when it comes to mimicking? Okay, so what is, okay, so first of all, what is mimicking? So mimicking is where we are... It, it happens in this sort of, I think we can all relate to this, okay? So I'm just going to take all back to uh, your grade nine math experience. The teacher starts talking at you and they're writing on the whiteboard and they're asking you to write in your notebook. And then they say, well, here's an example. And here's another example. And here's another example. And, and they're writing them on the board and they're working them through and they're asking you to put them in your notebook. And at some point, the teacher turns and says, now you try one. Try this one. So now mimicking is the dominant behavior we see in the kids now, right? The teacher has just given me a template for exactly how to do this. And now I'm going to transpose my, the question they've asked into that template, right? First I do this, then I do that, then I do this, then I do that. And then boom, there's my answer, right? This is mimicking. Um, mimicking is not the same as thinking, and mimicking is not the same as learning because what we're doing here is we're just, we're just having the kids master memorize a bunch of routines that aren't necessarily meaningful to them. They haven't had a chance to make meaning with it. And, and when these things have that arbitrariness that, to a memorized routine, they're likely to be forgotten. 
because they're not anchored to anything meaningful for the students. And I think we can all remember that too, where the teacher, your grade nine teacher is like going, well, you learned this in grade nine. And you're like going, nope, never seen it before. And it's like, well, it turns out you did, but it didn't stick, right? Um, and um, I think all I have to do is mention fractions and everybody gets a bit of a chill down their spine, right? And and so on and so forth. So mimicking is this where the student takes the question that the teacher has asked and plugs it into the template the teacher has demonstrated. That's not thinking. That's mimicking. All right. So there are two problems with mimicking. Problem number one, it's so effective in the short term. If I mimic now, I'll be productive now. If I mimic tonight, I'll be productive tonight. And because of that, it's highly appealing and highly addictive to students. And students start to believe that this is what they're meant to be doing, that they, they start to believe that this is learning and this is what's important. The bigger problem with mimicking is 100% of students who use mimicking as a production strategy will eventually start to struggle because of their inability to maintain productivity through mimicking. Because mimicking works great when there's one or two routines. By the time you get up higher and higher into the grades, the routines multiply. Now there's so many routines. And now it's like, I can't, I can't mimic all of these. I just, there's too many templates. And the questions all look different than what the templates we sh he showed us and so on and so forth. And mimicking runs out. And it runs out for everybody at some point. And this is a problem. Because when it runs out, you don't have a lot to fall back on. Right. So what are like, how do we break these habits? Right. How do we help students break these habits? But how do we help ourselves break these habits? Because like I said, when I first show you how to do it, am I, am I leaving space for the students to do any thinking? No. But more interestingly, I worked with hundreds of teachers and I would ask a teacher, I'd say, so what are, you, what are your thoughts on mimicking? And they'd go, I do not want my students to mimic. I want them to think. I want them to reason. I want them to understand. I want them to see connections. I'm like, okay, I like that answer. Then I'd interview their students. And their students would say, he definitely wants us to mimic. And the question is, how is that possible? Because students don't listen to what we say. They listen to what we do. So it doesn't matter if we say don't mimic. If I'm doing, if I'm, if I'm showing the kids how to do it before I ask them to do it, what I'm actually communicating to them is, I want you to mimic. And they're hearing it loud and clear. So part of breaking students of the habit of mimicking is breaking ourselves of the habit of mimicking. We have to, we have to really, really come to grips with the fact that if I show them how to do it before I ask them to do it, I'm saying a whole bunch of things. I'm saying mimicking is what I want you to do. I'm also saying that I don't believe you could figure this out. And when we say that I don't believe that you can figure this out, this actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the growing pains for students when all of a sudden we start asking them to think is that you never showed us how to do this. Yeah, I didn't. And it's a growing pain. And they have to build up the confidence and the realization that, oh, okay, no, I, we can actually figure. I got a group of three to work with. I can look at the board next to me and the teacher's there to give us a hint if we're getting stuck. And I can do this. I can move my way forward. Um, but if we keep saying to the kids, you can't do this without me telling you how to do it first, that confidence never develops. That self-efficacy never grows. And they don't develop productive struggle. They don't develop a growth mindset. All of these things are, are hampered by us, us saying to them through our actions that they're not capable. That doesn't mean that even when we do everything right, that the kids aren't going like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, but just... Let's take some, let's take a moment. Let's collaborate with the people around us. Let's see if we can figure something out. Um, so, so how do we break students of this habit of mimicking? First, we have to break ourselves of the habit of, of creating mimickers. Then we have to support them as they're in this growth period, right? We have to, we have to encourage them, but more importantly, we have to give them successes. It's not until they start having successes that they start to build up confidence in themselves. So we, we have to make sure that that first task we ask, that first task of the day, they're going to be successful at it. Even if it's so simple that they're looking at you sideways going, really? That's what you're asking me to do? And you're like, yeah, that's what I'm asking you to do. And then the next one's a little harder. And the next one's a little harder. And the next one's a little harder. 
But then it's like by the time they get to that one where it's really hard, they got four successes in their back pocket. They're all fired up. Let's go for it. We can do this. So it's we we break habits of him mimicking by helping them have success at not mimicking. And there's more details to that, but I think that's I think that's sufficient for now. What do you think? Building off of those successes is so huge. Every student wants to feel that. Every educator wants to feel that. And we just want to continue to grow and emanate from that. And I love that you're saying that they listen to what we do, not what we say. We know that as educators, as parents, and everyone who affects children, that we're, we're, we're constantly having influence. But what we do is always what it comes down to, right? Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Like I've been in classrooms where the teacher is at the front of the classroom going, it's okay to make mistakes. I want you to make mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. And then I interview the kids and they're like, it is not okay to make mistakes. And then you're asking yourself, okay, so the teacher's saying it's okay. They're not hearing it. So what are the teacher's actions that are communicating to kids that it's not okay to make mistakes, right? And then we got to start reflecting on that. And what does it turn out to be? When teachers are, when everything is too perfect, when the teacher is too perfect, the kids hear that they got to be perfect. Things like that. Absolutely. Those discongruent behaviors and actions and words can really be misleading to children at times. And we think we're being clear because we're being, we're saying it, right? We got the poster in the room. We got the, right? We got all that. We think we're being clear, but then we, you know, we're, we're, we're our actions don't match. My wife has this saying, uh, I can't hear what you're saying. Your actions are too loud. <laughs> oh, that's I, that's awesome. You know, like the discongruent med- messages sometimes can really, really get us. <laughs> Peter, I have every faith that I know where we're going to go with this question, but just knowing when we're discussing elements of student work and thinking about whiteboard work and vertical non-permanent surfaces as a whole group, is it better for the teacher or the student to explain the work? And can you elaborate a little bit as to why? I have every faith where we're going, but I want to hear it from from the source. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. So let's say the students have been working at the whiteboards and the whiteboards are a a mess. There's stuff all over them. Um, And now we got to somehow bring closure to this lesson. Now, there's a couple of ways that we can bring closure to it, but how we bring closure to it depends on the nature of the task. If the task is divergent, meaning that I asked the students to this task, and then I got eight different groups doing six different things, because that's the nature of the task. It just, it was open middle. A lot of kids went in different directions. There's a lot to look at. There's a lot of things to celebrate in that room. And there's a lot of learning we can do by looking at each other's boards, right? Um, And we need to do that. And we do that through what's called a gallery walk. And I'll come back to that in a minute. If the task is convergent, convergent task is where I ask the task and pretty much everyone does the exact same thing. They all do the same thing. And to be honest, their thinking's not really represented on the board because they, they did most of it in, in discourse. They talked about it and then they just put the answer up. It's not really valuable to look at the whiteboards. We have to do a different type of closing, consolidation. And I'm not going to talk about that one right now unless you push for it. But, but let's go back to the gallery walk. Okay, so the gallery walk is there's stuff to look at here that's valuable. And I think every teacher has been in that space where you're looking around the room going, I like what's going on here. I want students to see it. So we say, okay, do a gallery walk. So what do teachers usually do when they say do a gallery walk? They say, walk around the room, look at what other groups have done. And what do the kids do? They walk with their friends and don't look at what anyone else has done. Right. So that's that's not a gallery walk so much as go for a walk around the room and talk with your friends. If we really want to drive the the attention, the student's attention to particular things of the board. I'm going to be the I'm going to be the guide here. We're not. This is not a random walk through this gallery. No way. You are on a tour, and the tour starts here. And we go to a board, and we're not going to look at the whole board. We're going to look at a little part of it. I boxed it in with red, and I said, "Let's look at this." Right now, we're interested in what this group has done here, and we have two choices as a teacher. Choice number one, let's get the students to talk about what they did here. Okay. Now, let's unpack that because I think this is the most common thing we've seen, right? Your students are going to present the results. It turns out to be problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. Reason number one, 
One of the things we really want students to be when they're working at the whiteboards or at any time in the classroom is we want them to be present. We want them to be thinking about where they are now, not about what's coming in the future. And I think we can all agree with that. Except our research is showing that it's impossible for students to feel present if we keep reminding them of the future. So that seems like a pretty obvious statement, but what are some of the subtle ways that we remind students of the future? We set a timer. That reminds them of the future. You got six minutes on this task. That's, that, it's hard for them to stay present. Uh, we give them all the tasks at once. It's really hard to be present on task number two when you got three through nine there. And another way we really prevent students from being present is says, at the end of the activity, you're going to have to present to the whole class what you did. And it's really hard to be present in that space, right? So that was problem number one. Problem number two, um, if the students are just presenting what they did, how is that thinking for everybody else? How is everybody else thinking? They're just listening, right? That's not a thinking activity. That's a listening activity, except that's not true either. Because the first thing we learned in our research was when students present their work to the rest of the class, nobody listens. So it's not even a listening activity. It's a not listening activity. So here we have the students presenting what they did. No one's listening. No one's thinking. And everyone's anxious about the fact that they're going to have to present their, their, their solution next. Right? That doesn't sound like a great recipe for thinking or learning. Right? Um, so what was the alternative? The alternative was this. I'm the guide. We go to the board. We're looking at this board. Now, I can explain what's happening, but then again, everyone's listening again. No one's stressed about it, but no one's listening. So what did we find out worked the best? What find out what worked the best was we would say, take a look at what this group was doing here, just inside this red box. I want you to turn and talk and see if you can figure out what they were thinking. So the students turn and talk. And then I call them back to attention and I say, can someone not in this group tell me what you think this group was doing here? And then they share. They say, well, I think what they were doing was this, and, but I think they were doing that. And then someone else goes, no, I think they were doing this. And in the conversation, we're pulling on it like this. Now, it, it would be more efficient to have the students tell us what they did, but that's not a thinking activity. Whereas having the class turn and talk and then try to discuss and share with us what they think what's going on there is such a thinking activity. It also invites further thinking. Because think about these two statements, okay? This is what we did. That's statement number one. I think what they were doing was this. That's statement number two. Which one invites you more? Well, which one's more inviting for you to think about what's going on, right? Those tentative statements. I think what they were doing. Anytime tentative knowledge is presented, we're, we're drawn to it in a way. Right. Think about that documentary you watched last Sunday on something about, you know, Mayan civilization. And they're not talking about things that they knew for sure. They're talking about, well, we thought what was going on here, but we're not certain. It's like it's just like it just it's like catnip. It just draws us in. Right. And your your mind is going and you're engaged with this person who's trying to figure it out. It's much more inviting than having someone just narrate to you a bunch of facts. Right. So. Who talks about the board work? Others talk about the board work. And we invite them to think about it and conjecture about what it is. And then that creates a thinking discussion and about, about this. And we're engaging in a variety of different boards this way. Yeah, it's so intentional. Each step of the process and really making sure our students thinking and how are they thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And are they thinking, right? Like, really, like, if we know this, like, doing it this way, even though we've done it for 170 years this way, doesn't produce thinking, and we need thinking in order for students to be learning, then, okay, what do we got to do different? Now, I do want to put a caveat in here, because some of the listeners are going to go, yeah, but it's good for students to learn how to present their stuff. I agree there is. I, I agree it is. I absolutely agree it's good for students to learn how to present their stuff. So if that's your intention, if that's your outcome, that's your goal, that students learn how to present their stuff, great, then do it. But don't confuse that for a goal that others are learning from it. That's a different thing. 
Yeah, really being aware of the outcomes and what you want students to do to get there. Mm -hmm. And being that curator of education, as you said, like it makes me go back to my childhood of like the Art Institute of Chicago and my mom being like, no, you have to see the Degas. You've got to go see the Monet. We have to curate those those red letter moments, if you will, in learning as opposed to just letting what come. come. Right. Because then you're just going to beeline for the snack shop. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like. Yeah, we we are we are the educators in the room. We're creating the experience. We're not letting the students create the, the experience. Like we're we're creating a situation where an experience washes over them, but we're very deliberate about what that experience is. Absolutely. And I know educators are going to be inspired to go out and buy your book and read it. What instructional practices might teachers be especially mindful of when developing or implementing a thinking classroom? Oh, wow. There's only 14 big ones to choose from and about 190 <laughs> small ones. Um, so it's like, I think everyone is drawn to the vertical whiteboards. It's sort of like the sexy practice, right? Like, ooh, let's get everyone up at the whiteboards. It really feels like we're doing something different. And it's it's easy to be inspired by that. And it does make a huge difference in the, in the environment in the classroom. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to change the environment so students can be different. But the one I think is the most important, and I've always said this, is random groups. And I, I mentioned this earlier. And teachers are like biting their nails right now because that just sounds, that sounds scary. It is. It is scary. It's the easiest practice to implement. It's the cheapest practice to implement. All you need is a deck of cards, random groups of three, go. But it is so powerful and it is so scary. Why is it scary? First of all, it's scary because as teachers, we're, we're kind of like fatalists, right? Like we, we imagine the worst thing that can happen, triple it and then control for it, right? Because we just do not want anything to go off the rails in the classroom. And this, this random group thing just sounds unhinged because what if those two, you know, those two students end up together? Yeah, it might happen. But what if they come together and it actually works out well? Or what about this other situation where these students came together? The random groups builds community in incredibly powerful ways. It unlocks empathy in ways that we do not see in classrooms normally. It it creates a space where the students feel safe and it, it creates a space where students can actually start to learn from each other. Not just, you know, like in a typical classroom, students are either competing or trying to protect their, their social emotional well-being, right? Um, in a thinking classroom, they actually care about each other. They care that each other are learning and so on and so forth. It's a very different space and that's all created by random groups. Random groups is the engine that makes all of this work, right? Vertical whiteboards, it's great. But if the kids aren't, don't know how to collaborate and don't care about each other, it's not going to work that well. Um, we need the random groups. But then, and there's a whole bunch of big practices like that. And then there's a bunch of little ones. Like, it turns out that one marker is the right number of markers to have at the whiteboard. It turns out that groups of three is the optimal group size. It turns out that having the students on their feet when we're giving them the instructions is actually more effective than having them sit down. It turns out that putting writing it on the board is more effective than have, handing them a piece of paper. Like, like there's all these little things that we do as well. It turns out that it's better for students to pick a card when you're randomizing them than to use like flippity. Um, and there's there's reasons behind each of these things, but I hope teachers are inspired by that. And then I hope they're inspired to really interrogate uh, their, what it is that they, what they anchor their practices in, right? Have we act, anchored these practices in well thought out reason or have we anchored in a tradition? And it's beautiful, the simplicity of a deck of cards as opposed to another app or another thing or something else I've got to sign up and Google yeah. sign in for of just like, it's right. a card. Let's just get yeah. at it and get at the thinking as opposed to all the other things. Right. Like, well, I got to wait for my projector to warm up and... Somebody read me the code so I can mirror or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And so yeah. I love that you bring us back to some of those basics as well of like... Yeah. Let's have the ingenuity, but also do it with purpose and make sure that we're being mindful of our intention and where we're trying to get to. Yeah. 
Well, Peter, we are going to shift just slightly. You have given us a wealth of knowledge. I know everyone will be running out to get your book and we're going to go to what we call rapid fire questions at this moment. And we, we, we want to hear from you. No one does it in rapid fire, except maybe Courtney, Courtney could achieve it, but I, I know I couldn't. If you will just tell us a little bit about where we can learn more from and with you and where we can follow you, where people can find you, if they want to have more information, if you can start there, that would be amazing. All right. Well, um, there's a website, buildingthinkingclassrooms.com. It's a little underwhelming right now, but that's because we it's just a placeholder while we build a really good one, and it's almost done. Um, <clears throat> my favorite place for people to go to learn anything more about this is go to Facebook. Go to Facebook, under groups, search Building Thinking Classrooms, three words, and you are going to be inundated. There are over 40 groups on, dedicated to building thinking classrooms. The main one has over 50,000 teachers. There's a primary one. There's a science one. There's a language arts one. There's a Danish one. There's a Norwegian one. There's an Australian one. Whatever you're looking for, there is a Facebook group on this. Some of them have thousands of participants in it. Some of them have hundreds. Uh, and I didn't start any of these. These are communities of teachers who have come together and are trying to figure out and working together to support each other in unbelievably nurturing ways um, how to how to take some of these ideas and make them a reality. Building Thinking Classrooms is a set of tools. I've given, they're, they're based on research, and I've given teachers the tools. Some of them are easy to do. Some of them are harder. And and teachers need support, and they, they support each other in this space. Uh, there's a coaching one. There's a Building Thinking Classroom Facebook group dedicated to just coaches, coaches who work with teachers. So those are the places where you can go. There's a book. Um, there's a Twitter handle. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PG Lilly at all. You can follow the hashtag thinking classrooms. You know, there's places. If you Google it, you will find something for you to connect to. Every teacher needs a teacher. Every coach needs a coach. Everybody needs somebody to lean into in that moment. And that just speaks to your volume of expertise that everyone is connecting around your work. That's unbelievable. Mm, thank you. Tell us, Peter, what is your tagline or your bumper sticker for coaching or education in general? Oh, my. Okay. This is not rapid fire. I'm going to have to think about this. <laughs> so what's my tagline for coaching? Um, so, I have this thing with coaching um, because I work in this space and I work with people in this space. And I've actually, just like I've reified the idea that there are optimal practices for, for getting students to think in the classroom, there are actually optimal practices for coaches. And one of them has to do with a, a, a set of, it's, it's a set of axioms. Axiom number one, um, I can't change a teacher. Only a teacher can change themselves, right? Um, axiom two, if we're willing to accept the fact that students don't best learn by being told how to do it, we also have to accept the fact that teachers don't best learn by being told how to do it, right? So now how do we, so what do we do as coaches? If we can't, like telling them doesn't work in the same way that telling students doesn't work. And so what do we do? Um, well, the answer lies in the in the realization that uh, a teacher in change, a teacher who's changing their practice, is either running away from something or running towards something. They've either they've either seen something that they like and they want to move towards that, or they've seen something they don't like and they want to move away from it. Right? That's that's a definition of change. We're either moving away or towards something, and the thing that they're moving away from or towards has to be noticed. They have to have noticed it. So what is my tagline for coaches? My tagline for coaches and coaching is, how can I help teachers notice things? I love the uniqueness that you bring in that. I feel like a lot of times our tagline or our bumper sticker might be slightly repetitive and you bring, the, Courtney and I, no one can see us visually bobbing our heads and nodding over and over, but it's just a beautiful sentiment that you brought to us. Oh, thank you. Tell us one more because we always have to drag one more out. Tell us what's your secret coaching superpower or your go-to move that maybe you haven't shared with us yet. Oh, my soul boy. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so my secret power, my secret coaching move is to try to pull teachers, try to pull from teachers something that is absolutely positive 
about what they already do. So I'll give you an example. I'll gather teachers, I'll, I'll put teachers into a group of three randomly at a vertical whiteboard. And I'll say, I want you among the three of you to talk about the best lesson you ever taught. Talk about the best lesson you ever taught and make a Venn diagram of it. Of the three, of the, your three lessons, what is the best lesson you ever taught? Um, what do you, and then what are you noticing about what's overlapping? What's common? And so on and so forth. I believe that everything, not everything, but a lot of what teachers need and to to use to help grow their their professional identity is embedded in their experiences already. Every teacher has a best lesson. Every teacher has had a best student. Every teacher has has done something they're really proud of. And how do we surface those things? How do we how do we help teachers bring those to the surface? And, 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 and amplify that so that they can learn from those experiences rather than being always pushed at by the, by the, the urgency of the immediate, right? Like the, the thing that's preying on them right now and what's, what's causing them to have to be and do something that's not necessarily what they actually set out to do and be. Peter, bringing out the triple Venn diagram to wrap up the episode, that was epic. <laughs> yeah. And celebrating the successes. That's what it comes down to is as educators, we tend to get down on ourselves and think about the thing that we didn't get done today. And instead mm -hmm. celebrating what is that best lesson you brought me to my educator core as I was like, what would I, what would I tell him if I, he asked me what my best possible teaching lesson was. And so I think that is just truly brilliant and bringing people to their cornerstone of education and what they're trying to do. Yeah. Well, I think so too. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate all of your works and all of your sharing with our listeners. And we just hope that we can keep you within our network moving forward. Oh, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this. I hope to stay connected. Thank you so much. Peter shared so many insights from his book, Building Thinking Classrooms. How might you get students out of their seat and doing the thinking? Thanks for listening to C3 Coaches and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. C3, connecting, coaches, cognition. Whose thinking will you mediate today?